0: Well, it's a beautiful thing, this thing called the church, and we're going to be thinking about it uh, at a level these next couple of weeks that we haven't in a a while. Um, Exams have just finished at Campbell University, right? They're done, correct? Correct. And at a number of universities around the country. Sarah just finished hers at, at Meredith this week, and she had a Friday exam. Don't you know that those are the worst I mean, you're done with all the other exams by Wednesday, and you've got another exam on Friday. And everybody else is getting out of town, you know. They're leaving the campus, and you're hanging around to take your exam. And all you want to do is sleep for the summer. You know, you just want to get started on sleeping for the summer, but you've got to take the exam. So at the risk of putting you... And by the way, if you hadn't known about the schedule at Campbell, you would know by now... Uh, just a handful of kids over here, Rick, Steve, Karen, you know, uh, that normally we have a whole section of really young people, but just a handful now today. But you, if, 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 at the risk of putting you in an emotionally, I don't know, challenge mood, let's, let's take an exam this morning. Now, the good news is, it's very easy to get an A on this exam. All you have to do is think at, at, at just the most basic level you can get it. So here's the first question. How would you describe a perfect family? Well, there are no perfect families, right? We, we recognize that. I, I realize that this you know, could be somewhat of a difficult question or, or thing to think about for some of you because the, the family you grew up in uh, was anything but perfect, or maybe even the one that you're in now. I certainly hope that's not the case, but uh, it, it could be that it, it, it creates some painful memories. But let's, let's dream a bit. How would you describe a perfect family? I suppose you would start by saying a, a perfect family is one in which everybody just loves each other. And, and everybody respects everyone else. Uh, to the point that when there are differences of opinion, we just say, "Oh, well, that's really interesting. That's cool. That that just makes our family grow." You know, uh, when we when we take differences like that, you never allow differences to be a source of of conflict. But even but but it is inevitable, isn't it? Conflict is inevitable. So the perfect family would work through these issues, these difficult issues issues with mutual consideration. In accordance with family values of honesty and trust and openness, compassion, forgiveness, and just a whole host of other uh, of, uh, attitudes and, and a spirit that provides for the unity of the family. Well, you did fairly well on that. In fact, you did very well on that first question. Uh, so I'm giving an A plus to everyone in here, except for any Kentucky Wildcat fans that may have strayed in. Uh, you get an F. Uh, but other than that, <laughs> pretty good. Here's the second question. How would you describe, and if you are a Kentucky Wildcat fan, you know I'm kidding. I meant that for Duke fans, really. Uh, how, would you describe, how would you describe a perfect organization? Once again, no perfect organization businesses, organizations, but if it did, what would it look like? If, if you found, found a perfect business or a perfect organized group of people, organization, what would it look like? I mean, I imagine, first of all, that there would be clearly defined vision and expectations both for the company and for the employees. Communication channels would always be open, Clearly defined, flowing well, just beautifully communication back and forth. Incentives are given for industrious work, creative work. And the profits are always rolling. And they're shared with management and workers alike. It's a perfect company, isn't it? You guys are another A+. Plus. Now here's an extra credit question. Describe the perfect church. Well, that's it, isn't it? (laughs) That's the response. Why is it we want to respond like that? Look, the perfect church is fairly easy. It's the same for every one of us. We would describe it in the same way. A perfect church is one in which everyone agrees with me. (laughs) Right? When you think about it, it's far easier to have a great family or a great organization than it is to have a great church. For starters... Families don't have to be businesses. In fact, when you mix the two, you get in trouble, don't you? Businesses don't have to be families. It's wonderful when people feel like a family, but look, if you do in a business, if if it feels like a family, sooner or later, that'll wear out. People will move on for, I'm going to find another business, you know. But look, churches are called to be both, aren't we? A church is called to be all of the above and then some. Just think about the metaphors the Scripture uses for the church. It's a body of Christ. It's it's a building where the stones are connected to Christ and to one another. It's a vine, and when the branches are connected to the vine, the the, the branches produce fruit. It's a temple temple with a membership of priests. It's a body, it's a family, and a body with many parts. And Scripture goes on and on, but you get the idea. So the church is really, it's a family, and it's an organization. And much more than that, really. So imagine what challenges that presents with regard to structure to accomplishment of mission and to intimacy, all of which are very important aspects of the church. It's a lot tougher than it is. And so, you know, people say things like, oh, just wish my church could be like, you know, our family reunion. You, look, you only have to see those people once a year. Come on. <laughs> wish it could be like our business. Well... There are reasons that it can't be. Today and the next Sunday and the next two Sundays, at the very least, we're going to be talking about the church. This morning we're going to focus more on the universal church, which includes all of those who have ever put their trust in Christ from from Pentecost, from the day that the church was born right up until the present. And that number is growing even as we are here worshiping. People are coming to Christ. Several, quite a few will come to Jesus while we are here. And they all are going to make up the universal church. If you want to just think about it in terms of those who are alive now, the universal church includes everyone who believes in Jesus, whose trust is in Jesus. From next Sunday forward, we're going to be thinking about the local church, which is where... That the New Testament spends most of its time. And then we're going to be thinking specifically about Grace Community Church in our place in the 29th chapter of Acts in which we are living. We're going to pause for prayer right now. When we come to our text in a little bit, we won't be standing there just because of the way that our time is structured this morning. So let's just take a moment, though, and ask God to meet with us as we consider this beautiful thing this beautiful bride to Him anyway, the church. Father, we just want to thank You first of all that we belong to the church. And even as we'll read in a few moments, the gates of hell will not prevail against the church. Father, as Allison and I were riding over and praying this morning, and and then in the prayer time before the service, I was just overwhelmed to think about all that Satan has thrown at the church to try to destroy it. And I'm here, and we are here today because of the promise that Jesus made in Matthew 16. I will build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. Father, we recognize the challenges of being as a a called out assembly, a group of people. Collectively, we realize the challenge to collectively be light and to be salt. We pray that we would not be distracted by our own ideas, our own ways of doing things, our, our fleshly desires, our, our insecurities. It's not even what we're talking about this morning, but, but quickly, Lord, they come into play for all of us in church. And we pray that as we hear Your Word, today and as we think about it in, in, in much greater detail in our home groups this week. That our hearts would be full, full of gratitude for your love for the church, your sacrifice for the church, your leadership of the church. Jesus, as our elders often do, we we stop and pause. We recognize that this is your church. And Father, every one of us who calls Grace Community Church home has a stake in this church. We all have our different roles. Leaders have their roles. Deacons and elders, deacons, um, musicians, nursery workers. Lord, everyone has a role but we're all part of the church. We thank You for bringing us together. Now, speak clearly to our hearts. You always speak clearly. May we receive it. May the Holy Spirit teach us exactly what we need to know. And then may He give us strength to respond in obedience, with gratitude. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, for those of you who are new to grace or you're here for the first time, let me clarify what I was saying a little while ago or just give a little more explanation. We Last year, our church went through uh, a series on the book of Acts. And there are 28 chapters in the book of Acts. And, and it ends very anticlimactically, on purpose. It just ends. The story is being told of the church from the very beginning days at Pentecost all the way th- through uh, the next thirty years or so, and then all of a sudden, abruptly, boom! It just stops. And the reason we must conclude is that the twenty ninth chapter is still being written. So we are living in the twenty ninth chapter, and this series that we're, we're we're currently engaging right now is one that talks about what God is doing, or we're trying to discern what God is doing in the church since the the, the days that the, the, that the. Scriptures ended. Uh, much of what I'm going to say this morning and into next week will be based on thoughts taken from the book Church Membership by Jonathan Lehman. I, I rarely lean as heavily on a source as I am going to, especially next week, some this morning, but especially next week. And I, I just want to give him credit right up front. You know, when you really like a book, it's, it's generally for one of... Three reasons. One, the the author says things that you've never really considered before and it just captures your imagination and you say, Yeah, yeah, I really like that. Or two, and this is oftentimes the reason we love a book, is because we agree with everything he says. Yeah, I hear that. hmm That's right. You better believe that. I'm I, I, this is my book. This is my man. Because he says exactly what I say. Or three. He says the things that you've been thinking, but he says them in a very compelling way. Uh, Ways that articulate what you have suspected or believed in a very clear and concise and compelling manner. That's why I like this book so much. Number three. Not that I didn't learn something. I I certainly did, but he just puts it all together. Uh, Lehman's comments about our place as a church and God's story here in the 21st century, will help us bring this series, the 29th chapter, to a close. This summer, we're going to be looking at the book of Galatians, this fall, the book of Genesis. Um, so, <clears throat> but this is, when we say that this series is, we're coming to a close, we're drawing to a close, it doesn't mean that, that, that we're winding down so much, Is that we're gearing up, gearing up for mission, gearing up for more about the gospel and more about the impact of God's Word in our lives and His work in our community and around the world. When Adam and Eve sinned, thus setting the consequences of, of the fall in motion, God chose a nation to reveal Himself to the world. He said, here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to call this nation out. I mean, it's not like he, he figured this out. Hey, I've got a great idea. But this was His plan. He said, I'm going to choose this nation and I'm going to create very strict boundaries. I'm going to give opportunities for this nation to show the world exactly who I am. As you know, Israel failed miserably at the task God gave to them. Um, And when Jesus came to the earth, he he went to to the nation of Israel and they rejected him utterly, outright, just rejected him. And so Jesus said, okay, kingdom is moving on. And God moved the kingdom and his covenant from the people of Israel to the church, to anyone who would trust Jesus Christ, repent of his or her sins, and trust Jesus as Savior. Now, whether or not the covenant with Israel is on hold or it's completely severed apart from those who will trust Christ is a matter of great debate. And, and we're not going there this morning. In fact, I don't think we'll ever go there on Sunday morning. Please, I know that some of you have extreme, uh, extremely uh, strong, opi- strong opinions on either side of that issue. Please let me implore you not to allow that to be more important than it is. Uh, and, and, and cause any kind of division. There are so many Christians on both sides of that issue. Is Jesus, is God done with Israel or not? I, I, I think He's not, but I, I, I am not convinced. I mean, I'm just not sure. So let's don't go there. Well, our primary focus today is on the church. You know, it's instructive that Jesus spoke almost exclusively of the kingdom... almost never about the church. After the church was born at Pentecost, however, the New Testament speaks far more about the church than it does about the kingdom. Uh, Even though Jesus said little about the church, what He said, the weight of what He said can hardly be overstated. We're going to look at what He said today and next Sunday both, uh, two times over the over this next few weeks. Today's text is Matthew 16, 13 to 19. Now, to give a bit of a context, here Jesus was coming fairly near to the end of His ministry. And he's people have very strong opinions about Jesus. And so we ask His disciples, you know, who do you think that I am? And immediately after Peter's confession, which we'll read about in just a moment... Jesus started talking about his death, and of course Peter didn't like that. He said, wait a minute, what are you talking about dying? Come on, you can't do that. But of course it was part of the plan. Um, Peter, whose insight comes from God, declares Jesus as the Messiah, the Son of God, and in so doing he equates Jesus with God. He essentially says, you are God. That's a pretty amazing statement. In that day, our day, any day. Let's look at our text. Matthew 16, verses 13 to 19. Now when Jesus came into the district of Caesarea Philippi, a very pagan place, by the way, and just religions, every religion in the world in this little place in northern Israel, uh, which was just a, a, a pagan town in the Roman Empire. When he came to the district of Caesarea Philippi, he he asked his disciples, who do people say that the Son of Man is? And they said, some say John the Baptist, others say you're Elijah, and others Jeremiah or one of the prophets. It's almost like you would hear today if you just walked into a civic meeting in the town and some club or or, or in a school, and you say, who is Jesus? You get all kinds of answers. But he said to them, but who do you say that I am? I mean, it, it's interesting to hear what other people say about me. What do you say about me? Simon Peter replied, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus answered him, blessed are you, Simon Barjona. For flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. And I tell you, you are Peter. And on this rock, what rock? We're going to talk about that. I, I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Well, there are more than a few things to point out about these last two verses. These are stunning verses when you stop and and think think about them. Now, first of all, let's let's clear this up. What does Jesus mean? Well, let's not clear it up. I mean, there's a great deal of debate about what Jesus means when He says to Peter, you are the rock. There's a word play in the Greek... And there are all kinds of issues that you know, will say, oh, well, it makes us lean this way or it makes us lean this way. Let me just tell you, as you can imagine, Catholics understand this verse to mean that, that Peter is being given the pri- preeminent priority in all of the church. He's given the keys of the kingdom and he gets to say who gets in and who gets out. Now you can understand why Protestants would say, no no deal on that one. We don't believe that because God has not invested that kind of authority in any one person. All the Reformers said, no, that's not what it meant. What that means is that the statement, the confession that Peter made, that's the rock upon which the foundation of the church is going to rest. Well... There are an increasing number of conservative evangelical scholars including DA Carson probably the theologian I respect as much as or as more than, or more than anybody else Craig Blomberg another of them, other people who are beginning to say you know what <laughs> we really do have to understand it that way and what we have stated as our interpretation as as being that, 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 that the rock Jesus was talking about was on Peter is a Protestant overreaction. For what it's worth, I agree with these guys. Again, do I even have enough knowledge to make such a statement? I, I just, it resonates with me. Now, when you, he's not saying that Peter is a pope. In fact, when you study scripture, you will see what happened here it was, it, it, it's quite consistent with the interpretation that Jesus was saying to Peter, you're going to have a very important role in the kingdom. Do we not find Peter in that place? What happened in Acts 2? Pentecost. God pours out His Spirit and the church is born, and 3,000 souls, all of them Jewish, every last one of them Jewish, come to Christ. Then in Acts, Philip, the deacon, goes preaching in Samaria... And the word comes back to Jerusalem. Some of the Samaritans have believed. Now you know how the Jews felt about Samaritans. They didn't care for them. they're half-breeds. Come on. These people, and and not only that, not only are, are they racially inferior to us, they turned their back on the God of Israel. Well, so did the Jews who were despising them. They turn their backs. That's why the covenant moved from, Jeru- from the Jews to the, to the church. So, they say, well, we better go check this out. And who goes to Samaria? Peter and John. And what happens? When they lay their hands on them, the Holy Spirit comes upon them. Now, that's been the source of a lot of confusion in, in, in theology about the, the baptism of the Holy Spirit. Look, here's the point. Jesus said, Peter, you hold the keys of the kingdom. You are the one, you are going to be my representative to say who gets in, who doesn't. Now that's a bold statement and really it's more than most of us as Protestants can swallow. But one of the reasons it's so difficult for us is, is that we're so busy overreacting to the Catholics. Look, Catholic theology is really troublesome in, in, in a lot of places to me. And it's worse than some of you think it is. But it's not nearly as bad as some of you think it is either. I mean, uh, it, it's, it, there are so many things in which we agree. And, and look, if people buy Mormon theology all the way, I, I, I just have very little hope that they're believers. If you buy Catholic theology all the way, I've got great hope. Serious-minded Catholics are generally far more likely to be in the kingdom than, than not. Catholicism just lends itself to kind of um, nominal Christianity. In fact, there's a lot of, there, are, there are a lot of Protestant churches that lend themselves to the same thing, right? Right? And we talk about, well, Catholics say you've you got to do this, this, and this in order to get saved. But Protestants, you have to walk the aisle, you have to pray a certain way. You have to. We have our own formula. We, we, we all have formulas that we think are going to get us in. So, so what happened in Samaria, I think, is exactly... It's a testament of what is being stated here. Peter and John go... And they say, do you believe in Jesus? Yes, we do. Put their hands on their heads, the Holy Spirit comes on them. And the Holy Spirit was evidence that God accepted them. And God accepted their salvation. Which, by the way, is the other point about this. Peter does nothing apart from the sovereign plan of God. And and before you start jumping to conclusions, this is going somewhere. So this is just laying the foundation. Um, All right, then in Acts 10... Cornelius, he didn't even want to go to Cornelius. In fact, when they brought him back to to Jerusalem, they said, man, what are you doing going in the house of a Gentile? And he said, look, the Lord came to me in a vision. They came to me and said, come over here. I went and the Holy Spirit came on them just like He did us 10 years ago at Pentecost. And they said, well, how can we deny? Now, clearly, Peter's a big deal in the early church. Jews, Samaritans, Gentiles, all are welcomed into the family of God at the preaching or the approval of Peter. After that, Peter sort of fades and Paul rises in importance as far as leadership is concerned. And in fact, think about this. In Galatians 2, Paul says, look... We were up there at Antioch and Peter, who had preached the gospel so clearly to everybody, to all groups of people. He didn't say that, I'm adding that, but it's what he meant. Then he sort of got mixed up and he, and he started siding with the Jews over here saying, well, if you really want to be saved, you're going to have to do this and this. You're going to have to add it. He said, and I rebuked him to his face. Now, let me ask you this. Did you rebuke a pope to his face and then brag about it? In Scripture? No. Peter is not the Pope, and that's not what God intended. But he was imbuing him with amazing authority. Whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven. Once again, grammar issues. Sean, some of the others might stand up and say, well, that's, you know, that's past perfect, look... It, it may mean that what you bind on earth will have already been bound in heaven, but again, that's probably not likely. He's probably saying when you put your stamp of approval here, it's accepted in heaven. Now that, again, that's stunning authority. It's not at, it's not at the level that the, the, the Catholic thinks, but it's, it's at a level higher than most Protestants think. So where am I? Uh, So, Ephesians 2.20, Revelation 21.14, both. You want to check them out, both. Talk about the church is built on the foundation of the apostles. So it's not just Peter, but it's the apostles' teaching. The church is built on the teaching of the apostles. Now what does 1 Corinthians 3 tell us about the foundation that is laid? And and, and there can be no other foundation. that is Jesus Christ. And we absolutely have to take all of those together and recognize that there's not this unrestricted power and authority invested in any one individual, but there is more than we have been wont to think in our days. Any way you look at it, it's enormous power for the apostles to have a role of, at the very least, announcing who announcing who will have entrance into heaven. Almost equally amazing is that in Matthew 18, which we're going to read about next week, significant authority is also given to the local church. Now when I say the local church, I don't mean just the elders of the church. As I said in my prayer a little while ago, the elders have a role, but so do you. We'll talk about church discipline next week, Uh, just a cheery, lovely subject. Uh, I think it's only been exercised one time in the history of grace, and I wasn't here back in the day. But if somebody were to come under the um, authority of church discipline or under the heavy hand we want to think, It won't be the elders, I can promise you. It'll be the whole congregation. God willing, that'll never happen. He has given, Jesus has given amazing authority to us as a church. But that means something, that we are a church. His church. He died for the church. He established it. He is preparing us one of the things that, I didn't say a while ago about the, uh, what, what one of the metaphors for Scripture. We are a bride being prepared for Jesus. He wants us to be pure. And one of the ways that purity is established and maintained is that we say who gets to get in and who cannot stay in. Well, we're going to stop here. There's just no way to push all of that material in, in, into one week. It's risky to break in the middle. But hopefully, if you attend the home group this week, hopefully that's going to provide a bridge to greater understanding of this entire text. And, and I do want, before we come to the Lord's table, to, to, to give the briefest of, uh, of previews for next Sunday's message. Now, I said earlier that Jesus talked about the kingdom and the apostles talked about church. Church. Jesus, as we have just read, talked about establishing his church, and he said that the very gates of hell would not overcome it. And it is interesting, the timing. He was just about to talk about his death. In the passage we're going to read next week, Jesus will give amazing authority, not just to the apostles, but to the church. And the church... Now think about it. Jesus speaks about the kingdom... The the New Testament talks about the church. Where are, and I'll go into this in more detail, and this is these ideas from Jonathan Lehman. Where are the geographical boundaries? If if, if this is a kingdom, where are the geographical boundaries? There are none, right? It it crosses all lines. And the church really, it functions not so much as a nation as Israel did, but it functions as an embassy an outpost of the kingdom of heaven in a foreign land. And there are ways that we represent the kingdom from which we come. Look, aren't you so glad that on Tuesday, the amendment that we're thinking about and and, and over which Christians are divided has to do not with the kinds of issues that will put believers in jail. Now, some would say, yeah, but it's going to down the road if we don't... These are not the kinds of issues that a lot of our brothers and sisters are facing in other countries. But in this kingdom that we represent, we say to the world, there is a kingdom that you know not of. And while it is here at, at this present time... It is mostly in the future. And it is going to be perfect. All those perfect organization, family, church that we described, it's going to be perfect one day. You know, the brothers and sisters in Christ that you have, that you just want to say, well, the Lord's going to show you one day. When He does, you won't care. Because He'll be showing you something too. And then it's all forgotten. We're going to all be... We're called to represent that kingdom. We're like an embassy that says to the world. And one of the ways that we wave our flag is by saying, who gets to participate? And we do that through baptism and through the Lord's Supper. Those are ways that we wave our flag and say we belong to Jesus and all who participate with us belong to Him as well. Like I say, stopping right here can be kind of risky. Don't give the church any more... Don't, don't any more give the church too much authority than you do Peter back in Matthew 16, but don't give it too little either. Well... For now, it is our privilege to gather at the Lord's table, signifying our belief that Jesus' body was broken for us and that his blood was spilled in order that our sins might be paid for. He died as a perfect substitute, as a sacrifice for our sins. And when we gather at this table, We celebrate, odd word it seems like, to celebrate a broken body of Jesus, but we celebrate this body of Jesus too. We celebrate the relationship that we have together in Jesus. The first order of business for us as we come to this table is to prepare our hearts. 1 Corinthians 11, we'll be reading from that. I'll be reading from that this morning tells us that we need to judge ourselves before we come to this table. And so as the elders come to help prepare to serve, I would like to ask you to take just a moment and bow your hearts, bow your heads and, and your hearts before the Lord. And if there's any sin in your life that needs to be confessed, then would you do that now before we come to the table? And also, would you just give thanks for the sacrifice Jesus made on your behalf.